0: everyone, John I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is a return guest. About uh, eight weeks ago, pre-corona though, we spoke with Max Eisenbud, head of WME's tennis division, agent for a number of players, including Maria Sharapova in Lina, heavy hitter in tennis. Uh, This got a lot of really nice feedback. Uh, People appreciated Max's insights, some of his war stories, and we said we would do it again. And uh, who knew that part two would come not much later, but in a very different era in the corona era. So we speak a bit about what tennis is going through these days. Spoiler alert. Max is not optimistic about tennis returning in the near future. He is optimistic though about tennis long term and especially this much discussed merger possibility, this combo between the ATP and WTA tours. So here is a uh, an interesting conversation with a guest we had on just a few weeks ago. This is think of this as part two, but in a very different time. Uh, here's Max. It was about eight weeks ago that we spoke, and people were very happy uh, to, have, to have heard from you. We got nice reviews on this podcast, but it was, uh, it seems like about eight years ago. It uh, was a different era. We've had no tennis since the eve of Indian Wells, obviously, and it's hard to believe A, that, and B, it was hard to believe at the time that was a controversial decision. I mean, give, give us from where your perspective, I mean, what's, give us a lay of the land. What, what are you seeing out there uh, in terms of tennis?
1: this is a pretty humbling experience i guess we live in this you know amazing uh world of tennis uh, a little bubble that we travel the world to see these amazing cities um i think you know i've been in this business 20 years now and i think you know you take for granted how special it is to be able to go to paris and indian wells and onto Wimbledon and, and just that whole tour. So for me personally, it's been a pretty, you know, eye opener of just how, you know, the fact that I'm not getting ready to think about heading to Europe now and all those kind of things is, is pretty humbling and also allows you to really appreciate, you know, how lucky we are to be in in this, in this tennis world. So I think that's the first thing that's happened to me personally. Um, but, you know, as a client manager, as an agent, as a marketer, um, really your focus turns into your clients. And, and for us at, at IMG and, you know, me running the tennis clients division, having, you know, maybe 120 clients um, between pros and juniors and legends, um, you know, the most important thing for us was, you know, information um and we set that up really fast where um we were having daily calls with all the agents uh, getting information um i put a couple of my executives uh in responsible for for uh, one person was in 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 charge of all information from the WTA. another person was in charge of all information from the atp uh, another person from the itF and and just gathering information as things was just moving so fast and so much hearsay uh, just trying to gather information and then and trying to educate um, our clients in real time because I, you know a lot of our clients were stuck mm-hmm. in the United States. They didn't know do I go home? Uh, am I waiting for Miami? Are things gonna close down? So it was you know there's no blueprint for this, and we just you know tried to. Uh, you know try to do what's best for our clients and just get information and I'm really proud of the team that we're able to you know get that information and and try to make some good decisions for our clients um, and that's really the most important thing and continues every day it's just not about doing the you know the huge Nike deals and and, and generating money but it's it's you're managing the client's life and their career so that's kind of how we were doing it and continue to do it um and uh but it's been crazy.
0: What are you seeing? I mean obviously, you know, pl- players play and y- you and I can do our jobs, maybe not the same jobs we were doing, but you know, we we can still take our Zoom calls and work from home. Um that when you're a professional athlete, that's not an option. I mean, what are you seeing with your clients and what are the biggest challenges apart from the obvious one of not playing and not having prize money as an income source? What what else are you hearing?
1: Well, I- there, there was two phases, right? The first the first week or two weeks, maybe it was three. It's hard to tell now because everything's just,
0: <laughs> really? you
1: know, it's one long day. You didn't realize how long this was going to be, when they're going to get back out there, when's the next tournament. Is it going to be, you know, three weeks, four weeks? And then, so that there was a lot of anxiety in that time. Also, people were still trying to figure out where to go. Should we train? Should we not train? And then it came to the point, where I think everybody knew, okay, this is going to be the long haul and we need to get home to our families or we need to get somewhere um, that's safe and and where we can potentially train. So now we're in that second phase and I think the anxiety of, of, you know, where am I going, what am I going to do is kind of worn off. And now I think everybody sees what's happening. Uh, Obviously, Indian Wells, became a very good decision Um, and then the tournaments once Miami and it just kind of domino happened so I think now you're in the phase of clients are getting antsy clients are getting bored um, clients don't know how hard to practice should we practice three times a week Um, there was a while where Clients couldn't find courts, but they eventually found private courts. I think it's safe to say that everybody found a court somewhere, somehow, if they wanted it. I find it hard to believe that someone couldn't find a private court somewhere. So I think now it's the balance of, you know, there's no finish line. We don't know when the next tournament is. Um, so I think, you know, most of our clients that I hear are playing every other day. Or every day for a short amount of time just to keep muscle memory, keep the muscles going, technique, and then are doing some sort of gym work. Um, So, yeah, I think that's kind of the phase we're in now. And I think, you know, a lot of people are starting to think that there's probably not going to be tennis in 2020. Really? Really? And and, and trying to wrap their heads around that.
0: Obviously, the U.S. Open wants to figure out a way to stage its event. The French Open, we know, is desperate to stage its event. They've moved to October. Do you think we get tennis again in 2020?
1: You know, I'm going to give you my honest opinion, and I really hope that I'm wrong. I'm wrong often, and I hope I'm wrong again. But, you know, it's really for me to see tennis um, on tour the rest of this year. And to be quite honest, it's hard for me to imagine tennis without a vaccine. Really? I mean, I just, I just, it's hard for me to, to imagine, you know, 400 players from 80 different countries, you know, landing in a city and getting ready to compete. I just, I mean, I really hope I'm wrong, um, but it just, it's hard for me to see it. It's scary.
0: Have you, you've heard. I suspect you've heard some of the same creative solutions that I have. May- maybe we don't have doubles. Maybe we don't have mixed doubles. Maybe if there are no fans, we can use all of the grounds. Uh, I even heard that at the U.S. Open, if there are no fans, the players could each use one of the corporate suites as a locker room. You, uh, you Are you skeptical of these creative solutions, or do you think there's some ways around some of this?
1: Skeptical. I just, I mean... You know, one thing is, you know, all the tours have done an amazing job. I got to tell you, the leadership, um, especially on the ATP tour, I'm a big believer in, and those two guys, and everybody pulling in the same direction. You know, minus the French Open, but <laughs> really the sports really pulled in the same direction. And I've seen so much work and dedication of, of of trying to salvage the year and tournaments moving into later dates. And I've seen it all. I've seen it on paper and it looks amazing. And if, if we do get that window, the players and the tennis fans are going to be really, um, surprised, pleasantly surprised on how much work the tours have done as planned, you know, A, B, C, D, and E. Right. I just don't think we get there, man. And, and I, and I hope I'm wrong. I just, it's just, you know, I, I saw the other day where a country like Argentina is closing mm-hmm. their borders in and out until September. So how if you have a players that are in Argentina, the U.S. Open start, you know, how does that happen? I just I just don't see it.
0: I mean, it's, it's funny because in some ways, tennis is so poorly positioned being such a global sport. And in other ways, you got two people on the opposite sides of a net. At least you've got the, the social distancing during competition part. At least you've got that down. I want to ask you some more because I think last time we talked, you had some really interesting insights about sort of inside agenting that people don't always think about. And one of them uh, that I thought was really interesting was when you get to the semis of a major, various sponsors in the tour are already starting to strategize about what it would look like when you win. And you're trying to shield your client and they've got to win two more matches, but you've also don't want to get caught flat footed. Um, so I have – I, I got a couple more I want to ask you about. Um one of them is fashion, and when Maria Sharapova shows up with a new Nike dress to her night session at the U.S. Open, what's the backstory there? I mean, what, what goes on to make that happen?
1: Well, oh, that's a good question. Um, Nike works 18 months in advance. So when you, when any dress, if let's say we're using the U.S. Open, the start of that starts 18 months in advance, and Maria has her own line and her own collection that she wears, and then she has about six, or or I say she, she used to wear, she's retired now. (laughs) Um, she let you go in present tense. (laughs) So so she used to uh, have six or seven girls, young up-and-coming girls, that would also wear her collection, which is pretty unique. Um, so Maria, um, would work with the designers. There would be a, a, um, a head designer that was in charge of the Maria Sharapova collection and Maria would start 18 months in advance. So Maria would, she do a lot of tears. So she'd, you know, in her fashion magazine, she would tear the, the pages of dresses for inspiration. So she might see a dress that's on the runway somewhere. She tears it. And she does a little sketching too. She's our uh, sketching's actually pretty good, but she never would let anyone see it. So a combination of the of the tears, um, some sketching, um, and then she would sit down with the Nike designers and be like, "Okay, can we bring this to the to the court?" And a lot of times it would be no chance, or a lot of times it would be yes, we can bring that to the court, but it would cost seven hundred and fifty dollars. Nobody's going to buy a dress. So um, also you know, what palettes, you know, the, the color palettes that Nike's working with. You Nike, you know, people don't understand, but if you notice that the palettes that the tennis players are wearing, the three or four color scheme, is usually the same color scheme that their basketball, soccer, all their sports are. So you have to design in kind of a, a color scheme as well. So that process starts eighteen months in advance and she will probably see i'd say between 10 to 15 different versions of the dress um before it gets um and then she has to play test it to make sure the sweat and she can do all the different things so it's a major uh major um haul for all that kind of stuff and um Yeah, So, and then the PR and the promotion around it and when she's going to debut it and how she's going to debut it. I mean, the amount of emails about how she's going to debut the dress. Is she doing it the Thursday before the Grand Slam on a PR event? Is she not doing any and just showing up on the court with it? Sometimes they would do dresses, like the night dress, that she would do a collaboration with a designer, and then those dresses just... They can't make them for the masses, so only her dress was made, and it was a, a, a marketing play. Right. Then you get a lot of fans that are upset that they can't get the dress, but it just it just doesn't work. So, you know, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, and it's the reason why Nike's the best. They just you know they just capitalize on those moments so well.
0: What about the players that are not Maria Sharapova? How does it work for player X who's might have a deal with Nike, are they, are they essentially sold? Listen, here, here's what we're rolling out for the French Open. You got to wear this. Is, is there any sort of input and is there any right of refusal? Uh,
1: okay. So like, let's say a player like Madison Keys, who's...
0: Yeah. Good example. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Madison. So what they, what Nike usually has is, is, uh, is three lines. Um, and then Sharapova's line is a fourth line, and then the players would all be uh, broken down into those three lines. So let's say um, I don't know what they call it, but whatever they call the three lines, Keys and seven or eight other players are always in that line, and Kvitova and seven or eight other players are in that line. So they pretty much stay in that same that same line all the time. And there's usually not too much flexibility
0: um let me ask you this you You said last time that you you started out i think Max murney was uh an early client of yours. Um, how did you end up switching so the majority of your clients are female what What challenges are there with that and what in your personality what in your personality sort of how do you make that choice?
1: Well, I think it all came from Maria to be honest with you. Uh, Maria opened up doors Maria uh, her success um, brought me a little probably a lot of power and control on the WTA tour my relationships were there um, knew the game knew the scheduling um, and so I think Maria is the one who opened up a lot of the opportunities I mean Matt I signed Madison Keys when she's 12 years old because I managed Maria Sharapova and
0: how how different is it managing female players versus managing male players?
1: I mean, obviously, there's some difference of the you know of the emotion and and everything, but you know, there's no cookie cutter. You know, the way the things that I've managed Maria is different than Lena, different than Madison. You know, I managed Jack sock. Um, everything, everybody's different. Um, you know, there's obviously. Um, you know, the guys take the losses a little better than the women, just the normal stuff you would say, the difference between a male and a female. But at the end of the day I I consider myself a marketer. And I'm a brand builder and that's what I like doing. You know, the and you know and if that's a male tennis player or a female tennis player or, you know right. a can of paint, you know, I just I love that Part of the business and um, I don't think that sees male or female when you're when you're marketing or building a brand
0: are you watching the Jordan documentary?
1: I have um, purposely waiting um, so I can binge watch it
0: oh man all right'm I'm gonna, I'm but, gonna play uh, I'm gonna play spoiler for one little part okay that Jordan is with David Falk at Proserve Yep. and they talk to Nike and how are we gonna build a brand around this guy and they say, you're trying to make this guy a tennis player. And sure enough, ProServe had represented Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith and whoever else. Um, and, you know, clearly the, the template from Donald Dell and David Falk was a tennis player, was sort of a, a, a tennis player template. Do you see yourself taking these skills from Maria and Madison Keys and these experience with international athletes. I mean, why why are why why not do this for basketball players? Why why are you restricting yourself to tennis?
1: Um, I mean, I tried to dabble a little bit with some other sports. I mean, first of all, I played tennis. I went to college on a tennis scholarship. I loved the sport. I played the sport. Um, and the one thing I love about tennis is, especially when you have your star players you know eighty percent of their income is on off the court. And a basketball player or a football player, eighty percent of their income is on the on the field.
0: Right, right.
1: So the agent and those other team sports, I mean, okay, take you know, I know LeBron and those other guys have a lot of businesses going on, but for the most part the ratio of on the court and off the court is really the agent um, its job. And, and the ones you know the agent has a lot of control um, and influence in how you're building a brand and the decisions you're making in tennis. I like that. And I've been lucky enough to work with some, some players that have really trusted me and have really put their off-court stuff in my hands and said, listen, I'm going to focus you know, on the court and I really want you to focus off the court. And yes, I'll make the final decisions, but I'm going to trust the path that you're on. And that's been very attractive and I've been very lucky not all agents have that um and in our sport you can see the players that don't have great agents around them
0: right right.
1: It's, it's glaring how um you can see it I mean in simple stuff I mean it surprises me how many really good players in this day of age have really bad social media. Like social media is as important as your forehand and your serve. I mean, and you've got to, if you want to have deals, if you want to have relationships, if you want to, you know, so just little things like that. It's just, it's hard. It's, it's hard to see.
0: Tell me about the breakup. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize this. I mean, we've all watched Entourage, but um, I mean, I'm I'm always surprised by how often it's the agency saying, you know, I'm not sure what I can do for you. I've taken you as far as I can take you or sort of crassly, you know, I'm, I'm devoting a lot of time here and I'm not seeing the return on investment. What's the breakup process like both agent parting with client and client parting with agent?
1: I think, again, there's no cookie cutter there. I mean, there's clients that I signed and, you know, I have a, a client, Isla Tomlanovich, who I've been managing since she's 13 or 14 years old. She's ranked 50 in the world. And I just have such, I mean, she's like part of my family, you know, and I, I, I could never see, she'll probably fire me tomorrow, but I can never, I can never see me not working with her you know, and trying to set up for her life after tennis and getting her in different things. And, you know, last year we moved her from Nike to K-Swiss and, and, and because there were some revenue opportunities there and, okay, these deals weren't huge, but I was so proud and so happy um, to make these deals for her. Um, and I still think she's got a chance to, you know, she should be ranked much higher and she's very marketable, but I don't know. I don't put like a, I try when I sign the players, I want to manage them for life and I want to get her through tennis and, and into other opportunities. And, you know, I care about her and work for her, um, as much as I do for Maria or Lena. And I don't know how other agents do it. Right. But for me, for me, um, you know, I have a young client, Amelia Arango from, from, um, columbia she's i signed her when she was 13 or 14 so marketable so much flair um just a great girl had hip surgery struggling maybe she's four or five hundred in the world but she's like she's part of my family and i work for her and i try to do things for her but for me when i sign a player it's really genuine like i'm signing the player because i really believe in them i really believe in their character their marketability and if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen but i'm not gonna never go to a client and be like listen i'm sorry i thought you were going to be 20 in the world you know if they're three or four hundred in the world there's not much you can do for them but you can help them my office is still helping them get to tournaments helping them do this helping them with their funding helping them get their rackets. so You know, so one call, I'm on the call doing a multi-million dollar deal for Lena, and the next call, you know, I'm trying to beg Nike to please keep giving free product to my
0: client. And you're okay with that? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Let me ask you one more question. It seems like the the big off-season news, apart from whether tennis will continue and what it will look like, is this idea that Roger Federer didn't necessarily come up with, but he floated and gave some credibility to about combining tours – what do you think of that proposal? Could it work do you want it to work?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean I mean listen I've made my, uh, my living in women's tennis and, and I want I always want what's good for women's tennis but let me back up and say this I think the most interesting and the best thing that's happened to tennis in a long time is the two new hires at the ATP Tour and uh, Andre and, and Massimo. I'm privy to a lot of their plans, and I think a lot of this conversation is because of those two guys' vision for the ATP and the WTA to do more together, and that's where I think a lot of this is coming from, is their vision.
0: What do you you Um, think their motivation is?
1: Their only motivation is to make tennis better, and finally we have two savvy guys who have a real plan. We haven't had that in a long time not afraid to lose their jobs haven't had that in a long time right and i think these two guys are gonna do some amazing things um for our sport that we've needed so i think they are the two that have started this conversation because they've come in and said hey we want to start doing some more stuff with the women um and i don't know i haven't heard that from the atp in a long time now Do I think that those two mean let's join tours? I don't think so. Um, Maybe not now for the short term, but I think what they mean is let's try to pool our TV rights. Let's try to pool some marketing. Let's try to have some more bigger combined events. Let's let's make it easier for the tennis world to watch our sport let's stop being so fragmented let's stop being um so selfish um so for the first time in a long time you have these two guys on the men's side who are saying these things it's never I, i mean in my 20 years i can't remember anybody at the atp saying those things maybe the timing was right that the people were ready to do that maybe they trust these two guys that they actually came with a real plan, um, but they're really smart, um, and I think they're the story. Those two guys are the story for our tennis right now, and the two guys that everybody should be watching. And I think that if I think that if everybody in our tennis world, including the people that wear the IMG hats and the people that wear the Octagon hats and all these, if everyone can just try to become a little uncomfortable a little uncomfortable and follow these guys i think we can get our sport to places it hasn't been in a while i'm 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 really i mean Massimo. i've worked with at nike and wilson and um know how he works and just a really smart smart guy and and and
0: you're talking – let's just be clear. You're talking about Cavelli and, and Andrea Godenzi, the two new yes. chief executives of men's tennis, right?
1: Yes. Right. I right. think those two guys are the story. And again, if everyone can just get a little uncomfortable and try to follow these guys' leads, I think that – I think tennis is going to – has a chance. And if that ends in five years that the two tours are together, that would be great. Right. I don't. Right. I think people think that that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm reading some of this stuff. It's not happening tomorrow. Okay, but but let's just be happy that we have two guys in leadership that understand the value of the women's tennis and understand how fragmented our sport is and understand that if we're going to just keep going down the same path of oh I want to make changes but don't touch my tournament or right. don't touch my interest. Right. I think we've got something special in these two guys um, that can you know, can really help our sport and, uh, and, and respect what's happening on the women's side.
0: I like that. All right, you, uh, you depressed me with uh, your speculation. There's no tennis until there's a vaccine, but uh, you've, you've given me some uplift with the prospect of two tours combining for the betterment of the sport. That's a good, uh, good, good place to end it, but I, uh, that's, that's two good things to think about.
1: Well, I preface it that I said I'm usually wrong, so maybe I'm,
0: I'll continue my streak. So we'll have uh, we'll have tennis in July, and men's and women's will be fighting. Um, this was great. This was, again, we uh, we did this like totally different era two months ago, and people really responded to it. So I was glad we were able to uh, to pick this up. Um, I wish wish the circumstances were better, but uh, this was a pleasure.
1: All right, John. Any time.
0: All right. Thanks. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. All right. Thanks to our guest, Max Eisenbud, for uh, coming on for part two of our uh, discussion. Good of him to spend some time with us. And we also have a special treat. Jamie Lasanti is back. Um, Jamie, nice uh, nice to connect with you again. It's been a while.
2: It has been a while. We have still no studio. We still cannot sit across from each other at the table, but I'm here and I'm excited to be here.
0: We are excited to uh, to, to talk again. Um, we'll deal with uh, Skype and Zoom if we have to. It will be nice to reconnect in person. How? Uh, I mean, first off, how how are you? How are you experiencing this? How's uh, how are you handling this?
2: I'm all right. I'm hanging in like everyone. You know, there's uh, been a lot to do here at SI, even though we don't have sports. But I'm doing all right. I am staying home. Grocery store every 10 days. I actually hurt my back so i've been trying to be on the mend there but it's all good
0: i'm sorry to hear that it, it is um it is funny how there are no sports and yet in a lot of ways uh our jobs are as busy as ever um but i think we're all we're all for a variety of reasons we're all looking forward to uh to games resuming let me let me ask you you are uh you are much younger than i am you still have time to make a career shift would you like to be a tennis agent? Did, uh, th- did hearing Max make you uh, rethink your vocational choices?
2: He is very candid about the process. And I thought it was interesting how he shed some light on, you know, your questions are great. He shed some light on how the dresses for, you know, Sharapova or for Madison Keys, you know, things like that are kind of just interesting to hear the backstory. I mean, it's a lot of business speak and, and things like that. But it's certainly interesting to just hear how all that comes together and how much time that takes to come together. Um, he does have a very interesting job. Um, you know, I, I respect that he thinks and treats his, his clients like family. But one thing, you know, that I thought was interesting that he said was his one comment about social media nowadays being as important as your forehand and your serve. Mm-hmm. When you asked him about what makes agents better than others or, you know, what, which tennis players don't have the expertise in, their, in that part of their lives. And so I thought that was interesting just because I still think that athletes don't understand that in, in many ways. You know, there's still people who use it. Just as a carefree outlet, and I think um, you know, especially even in my life, like professionally, I've just seen how um, how much it really needs to be a reflection of you that you would like to present, even in your workplace. Um, you know, as as sad or as you know unfortunate as that may be. So I thought that was an interesting comment from him.
0: You know, it's funny. I was struck by that too, and it also strikes me that I, the one thing I never understand about social media is is the risk reward ratio that. If I tweet something out and it gets you know, thousands of retweets, you, you get a little uh, chemical rush, but I, I don't get a dime out of that. It's not really worth much to me financially. If I tweet something objectionable, in, in theory, I could lose my job. So as, as a risk-reward proposition for most of us, um, I'm not sure social media pans out so well. On the other hand, if you are Maria Sharapova, it's much different. I mean, there is there is real this could be a real revenue source too. I mean, Jeannie Bouchard is sort of the the classic example of someone who makes a lot of money, not because she's winning tennis matches, but because she has this social media following and presence and and personality. So apart from sort of like, I hate this word brand extension, but I think there are examples in tennis where social media for, for a player is dollars and cents, and it can be a real source of income, which means that if you don't do it well, I mean, you know, it, it took Roger Federer years and years to get on uh, social media himself. Now he seems to enjoy it. But also, you know, in, in some ways you are depriving yourself of income if you ignore or or neglect social media um, as a professional athlete. So uh,
2: For I, thought, sure. I thought that was interesting too. I think Cristiano Ronaldo is someone who totally exemplifies that. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I, I think I read something and and this was something I wanted to just look into generally. He reportedly makes more money for, you know, posts on Instagram than he does playing soccer. Paid Instagram posts for him literally put food on the table more than what he is so gifted at, you know, in his sport. It's just incredible that uh, an athlete can do that. And to your point, I mean, like, Jeannie Bouchard is a great one. It's an amazing differentiator that athletes uh, from years ago just didn't have to deal with. And now it's it's almost no question that if you, you know, if you don't have an Instagram or you don't have a Twitter, it's like, why? You almost have to like have a stance.
0: Right. Or, or use it as a, you know, just, just be a lurker. But, uh, I mean, you know, I, (laughs) I, I still think for people like us, I just see a lot of people diminishing themselves or having to apologize or wasting bandwidth, getting into a Twitter feud. And I'm sort of thinking, what, why? But it's much different if you are, uh, if, if you are an athlete. I, I think I che- fact-checked this, but even, like, I saw Jerry on Cheer. Did you watch Cheer, Jamie?
2: Yes, I did. Actually, after All we right. talked about it, I, I went and I watched Tiger King and Cheer just so that we could talk about it.
0: <laughs> can, can we go Ozark for the trifecta?
2: Oh, no. That's All the, right. one. That's the one.
0: Right. one. That's the next one. That's the next one. I mean, Michael Jordan's a given. But no, I, I was going to say that I, you know, Jerry from Cheer I saw recently makes, you know, $1,500 per sponsored post. So uh, it, it's not just Roger Federer and Cristiano Ronaldo. But um, let me um, let me ask you something else just sort of about where you are with tennis these days. And there is, uh, you know, I, I think tennis is in a very strange position where on the one hand, The act of hitting a tennis ball over a net when you are, you know, 20 yards away from the opponent is in keeping with social distancing. And yet it's pretty obvious that tennis has some real challenges about uh, reconvening. Um, A lot of different discussions, a lot of proposals on the table. Wimbledon said we're out. The French Open and the U.S. Open have been a little bit more stubborn. Of course, they do not have the benefit of, you know, the nine figure insurance policy. Um, that the all England club has, but what, uh, where are you on tennis returning and what has struck you about a lot of these discussions that are going on?
2: Yesterday, just yesterday, uh, you know, the 2021 Australian open said that it could be impacted, you know, by the pandemic. Craig Tiley said that, said that yesterday. So I am sort of with what Max said that unfortunately I don't know if it's possible without a vaccine, without some sort of, I think it's possible, but there will be so many differences that it'll be hard to consider a Grand Slam in the same way, Uh, you know, have the same weight. Should it be worth the same amount of points? Should people make the same money? If all of those factors that make a Grand Slam so grand, you know, for for lack of a better word, aren't there. The idea of doubles and and mixed doubles and all the other stuff that happens. Besides just the, you know, 128 players in the main draw that the fans and the, the way that, you know, the, the players that attend that, I mean, if, you know, like you guys are talking about with Max, if players from Argentina or players from the U S or from certain countries aren't allowed to attend all of a sudden now you're not opening it up to all the best players in the world. Right. So how can you say that, that French open title or that Australian open title is just as validated as a title from a previous year, where it was open to everyone and anyone. You know, the best of the best competed, and they they you know found a winner that way. I just think it's going to be really difficult, um, given how many people are involved and how many people attend a tennis match. I mean, you've been to the U.S. Open, I've been to the U.S. Open. Social distancing is not possible um, with the amount of fans and people and workers that happen there. I know that you had a different, different scenarios for the U S open that you, you know, outlined your mailbag, but do you, do you think that the fanless, you know, no, no audience tennis is, is a real option here.
0: I think it beats the alternative. And I think whether it's WWE or, or UFC or, you know, Korean baseball we are uh we're sort of getting a glimpse that it's it's possible I mean it's it's different it's not ideal the athletes themselves I mean I I was joking sort of who who are you pumping your fist to if there's nobody um but I think I mean I don't would let me ask you this would you and then I'll keep monologuing but would you go to it would you go to a sporting event right now would you go to the U.S. if I gave you tickets would you go to the U.S. Open if it were held
2: no I don't think so the same goes for what I get on a, a train to exactly. that I have to get to go to the office, you know?
0: Right. right. Would you go to the movies? We, I mean, I think it's going to be a long time before people are comfortable. Um, I mean, I think some of this is just simple economics, right? I mean, the ESPN plays, pays 80 million plus for U.S. open broadcast rights, even without trying to get a reduction, which I think is a very real possibility prize money is about, you know, whatever it is, 55 million, roughly $60 million. So ESPN alone, without a sponsorship, without talking about Eurosport, without anything, a tennis channel, without anything else, ESPN's already covered your prize money. So I think from a dollars and stents point, even if you don't make a dime in ticket revenue this year, you'll still make a little bit of profit if you figure out a way to hold the event. I think the, the question is, how do you do this with an international sport? I think this issue that you raised about, If the U.S. Open isn't really open and Argentina is saying you can't come, you can't leave the country and Diego Schwartzman and Del Potro don't get to play, I don't know if players are going to have to come here and quarantine first. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I think that, that was something that Craig Tiley had mentioned too. I mean, he sort of said worst case scenario is there's no 2021 Australian Open, but we've sort of identified this as four different scenarios. It did seem like the most, and I had an, someone had texted me saying this as well, it seems like the most likely one right now in mid-May, you know, eight, eight months away, is that there is an Australian Open, the players may have to quarantine before playing, which is A, strange, and B, I don't know what that does for the ATP Cup that uh, this year preceded the Australian Open, but also the fans are only allowed to come if they are from either Melbourne or Victoria, the state. and. Basically, your international event is not open to international fans. It's all very strange. I'll, I'll tell you the, the I'll tell you the strangest strangest one I've heard so far is that there's real concern over the locker room. Even if you don't have fans in the stands, how do you have? And Matt Max made this point as well. How do you have players from scores of countries with their own? You know, with everyone's got a team, and even if there are no doubles players, mixed doubles legends, juniors you still have hundreds and hundreds of people milling around from all over the world. One thing I had heard is if you don't have fans, you have access to the entire grounds of the U S open. It may be that there could be dozens and dozens of locker rooms. You could use corporate suites as locker rooms. You could use, you know, the catering facilities as places where players could change. And basically what you would have is, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of players scattered all over the grounds with different changing areas and different locker rooms to avoid hundreds of people in one space. So, I mean, again, I think this is, uh, you know, we've all gotten nimble, right? I mean, this is you and I doing a podcast over Zoom, and this is where I am right now in Connecticut. There's a distillery that stopped uh, making alcohol, and they're now making hand sanitizer. I mean, everyone has, at at some level, had to improvise, but boy, I think tennis has uh, has a tall order here
2: yeah it's it's really going to be tough and that closed door scenario just you know there' again, like you say, the locker rooms, um the bathrooms, where the players eat, where are they gonna practice I mean, there are so many things that you and I you know, obviously remote working now is is the new norm, right as you say, we're on this zoom call now um so obviously, a lot of companies are probably reconsidering their Manhattan offices or their San Francisco offices, because everyone's doing business as usual, you know, remotely. So I think, you know, all of our lives are going to change on the other side of this and tennis will be the same, but it's a much more difficult scenario than just saying, oh, you can, you know, you can now work from home three days a week because we've proven, right? I mean, this is, this is a competition. This is, um, you know, there are, People who have jobs that are solely to, you know, organize an event that they might not be needed anymore. I mean, taking temperatures before matches. um, There's just so many things, you know, we think about blowing uh, the candles out on a birthday cake. You know, I saw something on social media the other day that like, oh, we we used to eat the cake after somebody uh, made their wish, you know. And it's like, there's just so many small things like that that are not going to be the same anymore. You know, I don't know how many people will be eating birthday cake after somebody made their wish. No, and uh, I don't know, I don't know how many people are going to, A, want to go as a fan to an event and as a player, how much are you willing to risk? And I think then you start um, really, again, It's it's it brings the level of a Grand Slam tournament or any tournament down when you know you have some players you just say i don't feel comfortable right. you know or i'm i'm a high risk i'm i'm more at risk here and i just it's just such a complicated situation
0: i'll tell you one in the spirit of uh blowing out a birthday cake and then eating it which now that you say it it's really disgusting um <laughs> John Oliver had a riff about bowling, which is the same way. Hey, we're all going to like stick our strangers are going to stick their fingers in these uh, balls that we're then going <laughs> to. Um, the other one, I think in tennis, that is a mercifully that I think we should all celebrate as a casualty is the ball kid picking up the yep. like, snot so sweat, so towel. Um, yep. I don't know if you've seen now. I mean, they're not even the players are playing these exhibition matches and they're tapping rackets. They're not even shaking hands. Right. Um, I, I think the the ball boy is towel boy is, is uh, thankfully going to be relegated. I, I mean, the other thing, too, that I think is something that's a little distasteful, but we all need to talk about is just the visuals of this. And, you know, the I think Louisa Thomas wrote this, that the National Tennis Center is like two miles from this Elmhurst Hospital. It's basically ground zero for coronavirus, where you have these refrigerated trucks that are hauling out the, you know, deceased bodies. It's a little strange Labor Day weekend to be two miles away from that, amid all this devastation, this economic ruin, and sit there in a corporate suite, you know, drinking one of those uh, the honey deuce and eating your lobster roll. I mean, I think that uh, the the from a sensitivity standpoint, so it was sort of like the the post for Corona version of the spring break kid in Daytona. I mean, yeah. you, you don't want to be the guy in a corporate suite two miles away from where they're still. Calling out dead bot. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think yeah. there's an optics PR component to this that um, probably needs to be considered too.
2: We talk about all these changes, but the biggest one that has been getting some, I guess, serious consideration, maybe not for implementation, you know, this year or next year, but the, you know, re- the merger of the WTA and ATP tours, you, you wrote about this a little bit and it's been a, a hot topic, but Realistic, unrealistic. Max also, uh, mentioned it on, on this pod. Do you, do you feel like it's something that will get some consideration going forward now that we might have this long, long layoff from tennis?
0: I think it's all about terms and conditions and it makes all the sense in the world. And this is something, you know, Billie Jean King floated this decades ago. I think, Tennis is at its strongest, not just as a a product, not just sort of uh, spiritually, but in the marketplace, when it goes to networks, when it goes to sponsors, when it's men and women. And I think it's no secret that the biggest events and the best events and the most successful events are mixed gendered. I think it's great when, hey, Nadal won in a blowout, but luckily we can go to court six where Coco Gauff is playing, you know, Naomi Osaka which wouldn't be on court six. But I I think it's a great hedge when sometimes you have matches that don't sing and sometimes you have matches that do. I think it's a nice sign that tennis can accommodate men and women. It brings in a bigger variety of fans. I mean, they're all things going for it. The hitch in all this is that the ATP and the WTA are two different businesses right now with two different valuations in the market. And the big question is, you know so somebody somebody wrote to me they said that you know it's a merger is never a merger that two law firms come together and one of them brings in more business than the other and they have to figure out how to you know how to distribute the partner equity i think it's all about what this is going to look like and do you pay equal prize money if the men bring in fewer sponsorships do they get equal pay and and vice versa i think a lot of this sort of depends on concessions that are willing to be made inevitably some people won't be happy but i think if you just hammer home this message that one plus one is three and that whatever nickels you might be giving up because you can prove that your sponsorships are more valuable if you can convince those people that hey look we're all going to benefit much more from this union than leaving a couple of shekels on the table for uh for, for if you have equal pay i think that's really critical so i i mean to short answer is I, I think it's great. I think there's a lot of potential there, but I think it's going to take some, uh, some creative deal-making. Let me, let me ask you, I mean, you know, one thing I was thinking about this, and I wanted to ask you, especially as a, uh, as a D1 soccer player, have have you been following this lawsuit with the the women's national team in, in U.S. soccer? Of course. Uh, thoughts on the summary judgment last week. And I'll, I'm, I'm teeing you up to make a, a broader point, but did, I mean, I don't know. What, what did you, uh, what did you think? What did you experience when you heard about this decision in uh, in California Central District?
2: Appeal, appeal, appeal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are those are the first thoughts. I mean, it's, it's just concerning, honestly, on on all parts. And the fact that these women are going to keep fighting is just really great. And I think that people have, you know, people not in the sport have really shown that they're going to support that fight. So wasn't happy about it to say the
0: least. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, I, I'm i I'm with you, and I thought about this through the lens of, as I often do, through the lens of tennis, mm-hmm. which is there are real PR consequences to some of these decisions being made. And if this merger were to happen, but you had a situation like this where sort of women were demonstrably paid less and paid under market value and e- even made a deal, negotiated a deal that later they would come to regret, even if that was done in the spirit of collective bargaining. There are real PR consequences to screwing this up. And so when Roger Federer tweets this out and and Rafa follows and a number of other players and Petra Kvitova applauds, I think that's great. I think this makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really good time for tennis to consider this, but I think people need to remember that getting this wrong, as we're seeing with, with women's soccer, Getting this wrong has some real consequences in the marketplace. So um, I just, I would sort of, uh, it's, it's easy, easy to send a tweet and then send a retweet. And I'm glad that, that Billie Jean King is, is getting the credit she deserves here. But this thing really needs to be handled sensibly, delicately, and in a way that makes people happy. Because if this thing goes sideways, as we're seeing in, in soccer, it's really, really a bad look. So uh, that's my that's my sort of uh, hopeful optimism slash caveat on this issue.
2: For sure. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's just so many different factors of that. I mean, we could we could have a whole nother podcast just about the U.S. Women's National Team and and that whole legal process and total catastrophe that everything happened. But um, I agree. I think that, you know, the as Max said, the merging of the tours or even the explicit details of that um, aren't it's not something that's going to come tomorrow or even next year it right. it's going to take some time but the fact that people are entertaining it you know I think people are doing a lot of different things now with a little bit more time of time on their hands to reflect and you know look at the bigger picture of things and um, hopefully that's beneficial for tennis in this way
0: I, I was thinking with Max too. I mean, right now it's a given. I mean, I, I always say no. Nobody says, "Oh, I love the Williams sisters." But who's that guy from uh, Spain who uh, is the lefty who's really good on clay? Nobody says, "Oh, I love Roger Federer." And who are those sisters from uh, you know from Southern California who have won all the majors? I mean, fans like men and women's tennis. Fans follow men and women's tennis. It was a big deal when it happened in the NBA and in, in in baseball. Well, you know what? We have females as chair umpires for men's matches and vice versa, it goes on without a peep. We even have agents that represent players on the men's tour and the women's tour. I mean, tennis is so integrated in a way we don't even think about in a way that's great. Um, Again, this makes all the sense in the world. I just think it really needs to be handled delicately because the minute you have a situation like USA SOG, the minute fans are yelling, you know, equal pay, equal pay, at tennis matches, we're we're in a bad place, so tread carefully. Let let me ask you one more thing. Um, no matches, obviously, since you know, effectively since February, since the first week of March. Um, a lot of tennis news. We've been talking about uh, this proposed combo of tours, but there's been plenty of other news. Some of this is dates and rescheduling. We've had fun stories. We've had I don't know if you've seen the the two brothers, the two little kids with the one handed backhands, and we've had the backboard challenge. Give me your favorite. A uh, piece of tennis news or uh, marginalia in these last eight weeks, Jamie.
2: I, uh, you know, I'm gonna call out a, a coworker here, um, our friend Stanley Kay, who you know, people who are on si.com um, may know very well. But I was uh, scrolling, you know, through my feed and I saw this, um, you know, video about people in New York and they were just on their rooftops, kind of hanging out, spending their time. You know, some people were working out. Some people were, you know, jump roping. Some people were picnicking, enjoying a glass of wine, whatever it was. And there was this one guy who was hitting the tennis ball against the wall and, and practicing his serve. And I said, you know, that guy looks really familiar. I think I might sit next to him at work when we were in the office. Sure enough, uh, Stanley K was, you know, caught on tape in New York city on his Brooklyn rooftop, practicing, practicing tennis, you know, doing the, roger Federer's challenge and i think he even got the little retweet from from Federer. um so uh you know you mentioned you mentioned a little the the challenges or um you know tennis players kind of having some fun during at home during this quarantine time but i think that's my favorite part is just these um you know these little fun stories that was something for me that you know i i don't see stanley anymore um I, we certainly don't have tennis anymore, but it was just like a nice heartwarming moment where I was like, Oh wow. Very, very cool for him. And, uh, you know, it, it, it got all over like the internet and retweeted, but it was, it was fun.
0: I can't believe I missed that. Um, <laughs>
2: by the way, <laughs> that's a very, that's a very personal tennis story, but
0: you want uh, Stanley K trivia. He, he is from the clan of what uh former top 10 player, you know that?
2: Yes, I do because of uh, U.S. Open stories that we. Yeah, wrote. very
0: good, very good. Aaron Crickstein for our uh, for our listeners. Uh, yeah, we
2: could. Yeah, you can you can Google that and read uh, read all about it. I think he's wrote about it a few times for SI.
0: Oh, that's wait, that's a great. Uh, you'll have to include that clip in our show page. All right, this has been great. Let's do uh, let's do another one of these next week, perhaps.
2: Let's do it. We've uh, I think we've figured out the the I'll, Zoom I'll studio here. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> I'll,
0: I'll call him out and say, "God, God bless Max Eisenbud," and he's uh, he's 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 a great guest. But we had some some technical challenges on that front as well. But uh, hopefully, that the content overcame the audio quality. So, um, anyway, thanks, Jamie. This was great. Nice chatting as always.
2: Same to you. Uh, stay safe. Stay home. And we'll
0: talk soon. You as well. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Hope everyone is uh, safe. Hanging in there. Uh, spiritually as well as physically and we will do it again next week you can uh, subscribe leave a review feel free to send guest suggestions and we'll talk in seven days take care everyone